Funny thing happened last night, too. About 15 minutes, you know, when we talk about, you know, trusting Jesus and all that kind of stuff and his plans, about 15 minutes after I got off the phone with Kate, I'm sitting at my computer looking at the screen, and all of a sudden, everything just goes poof. Yeah, that's kind of what I said. Oh, no. And uh, here we are, everybody. (laughs) I hope this goes well for you. But it was one of those things that there was like for like a, a fraction of a second, I was mad. But then I quickly just was just like, all right. I guess we're talking about trusting Jesus. I guess we're talking about our plans and how they, you know, it, our plans are not what matters. And my sermon notes are not what matters. And so that doesn't mean I had an easy evening last night. But I think it's almost the... Um, the sense of humor that God has that, you know, he's just bringing me to that place of surrender even now. So we're going to get into it together. Um, If you would, go to the book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, you can head to the back there. There's a small tray table back there with some Bibles on it. You could borrow one of those or you can keep it if you'd like. We're going to be in the book of Mark together in chapter 11. Um, If you're a phone, if you're a Bible on the phone kind of person, you can just go to our website as well. Very at the top of our website, there's a little link where you can click on. That will bring up the reference that we're going through this morning, if that's preferable for you. We're in Mark chapter 11, and we will be starting at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Some of you might recognize that this is a precursor to what is, well, actually this passage is often referred to as the triumphal entry. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. In about a week's time, he will be crucified. This morning, what we're doing is we're launching just a a, a short series of talks leading up to Easter that we'd look at, we would look at the final days of Jesus and some of the events surrounding his life that would lead up to ultimately his crucifixion and his resurrection three days later. And so we're going to be looking at this aspect of that uh, this morning. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you um, had a plan for us all along, a plan of redemption, a plan of rescue. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave it up to us to fix our own stuff, but you came into this earth 
to die on a cross for us so we could be brought into a relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we can have a relationship with you, to experience your love, to experience how you transform us when you work out your will in our lives. And Jesus, we just pray this morning that as we look into your word together and as we find ourselves in a place of, of needing you so desperately and being so dependent upon you, I, pay, I pray that we would just completely surrender all of our stuff that we would receive from you. That goes for me. As, we've, as I've shared, uh, there's struggled with my notes this week, with them disappearing last night, and then that goes for also those of all of us really in this room, that we would just surrender our hearts to receive all that you have for us. And may you powerfully work in our hearts and in our lives this morning. Give us ears to hear all that you have for us. May you encourage us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, I, if you know anything about me, you know that I completely adore my kids. I've got two little girls, one is seven and one is four, and they're so much fun. I, 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 I love coming home at the end of a work day and seeing them. I remember like when they were, even when my oldest was still really little, I just remember sharing with my wife, I can't wait to the point where she's old enough to understand this concept that daddy's home and I can't wait for her to come running to me and give me a hug and express her excitement that I'm home. I guess I needed the affirmation, I don't know. <laughs> but I get to experience that every day when I come home and no matter what, they're always happy to see me and of course I'm always happy to see them and they're just such a joy to me. And I, I, like to have, I like to have fun with them. And a number of years ago, when Jazlyn, my oldest daughter, she's seven now, but when she was younger, uh, and I have less opportunity to do this now, but when she was younger, when she was still learning about her relationship with God and growing up in the world and all that kind of stuff, and she was trying to put all these concepts and things together, she would, she would make these statements that were entertaining and were amusing and, and uh, that just you know brought so much joy to my heart and made me laugh. And, and like any father would do, I thought, I gotta start a Twitter account for her. <laughs> And so I did, and it wasn't, obviously it wasn't for her, it was for me to, to share my daughter and, the, and her brain with other people. And um, uh, there was one, th there, when she, uh, two years ago when she was five, there was a time where she was completely obsessed with butterflies. And if you are a parent of a small child, you know that at different times in their lives, they become, they have these weird obsessions. And um, she's over the butterfly thing now, she's totally moved on to fairies. But she was obsessed with butterflies. She was a butterfly for Halloween, and, and she was completely obsessed with them. And uh, at one point, she made this statement, and of course, I had to tweet it, but she, she made this statement. Actually, she asked my wife a question, and she said, Mommy, does God hear us when we whisper? My wife said, yeah, why? And she says, because I whispered a prayer to God to make me a butterfly, but he didn't do it, so now I'm sad. <laughs> Poor girl had to learn the hard lesson at a young age that sometimes the expectations we have of God are sometimes a little bit misplaced. I mean, I'm not a prophet or anything, but I don't think God ever had it planned for her to turn into a butterfly. But if she had her way, of course, that's what would have taken place. But a lot of us can relate to that, right? We have these expectations, we make these plans, 
And sometimes it's separate from our relationship with God as it was with Kate because she didn't know Jesus back then. But even after we come to know Jesus, we still make these plans. And we try to sort of pace God on top of that. And we make him subject to those plans. And we create expectations and we sort of determine for God how he will work in our life and what we need. And it's almost like we've created and architected all these plans and we just need God to bless it. Like, don't mess with it, just bless it and we'll be good. And that's how we are sometimes with God. And here in our text, we see a similar thing being played out where the people have an expectation of who their king is and what he will look like and how he work within their country. And the people of Israel had been waiting for a long time. They've been waiting for almost a thousand years. We, we assume it's somewhere in the neighborhood of a little bit more than 700 years. They've been waiting because they had been overrun by one empire after another. At, at the present time, it was the Romans that, was, that were oppressing them. They were under Roman rule. Before the Romans, it was the Romans, it was the, the Greeks. Before the, before the Greeks, it was the Persians. Before the Persians, it was the Babylonians. And before the Babylonians, it was the Assyrians. But even before that, they were in bondage in Egypt and, until God delivered them. And every year, the people of Israel would celebrate their liberation from Egypt with a major holiday you might be familiar with called Passover. But here's a little rundown if you're unfamiliar with the origins of Passover. What's happening is Israel's in slavery and in bondage in Egypt, and the Pharaoh would not let them go. And he needed a little motivation, so God brought plagues upon the land to convince Pharaoh to change his mind. And they went through all kinds of things. The Nile River turned to blood and everything that lived in it died. The, the Nile River was the, the, their source of so much of their life centered around that. But it turned to blood. The, the, the land was overrun with frogs, with lice, with gnats, with flies. The people all broke out in boils. They experienced hail in Egypt, go figure. They was over, their land was overrun by locusts. They experienced darkness for three days. God brought these various plagues, and one by one, he brought those plagues, and he gave Pharaoh an opportunity to surrender to him and to let the people go, and each time, Pharaoh ultimately decided that he would not do that, but it was the last plague that was the tipping point. It was the last plague that finally got his attention, and it was the plague of death. Moses, who was the representative of God to the people uh, had the people slaughter a lamb and he instructed them to place blood on the doorposts of their homes so that what would happen is so that when the angel of the Lord would pass over them, the angel would pass over because of the blood that was on the doorposts. But in any house in Egypt where there wasn't blood on the doorpost, the firstborn in that house would die. And that definitely got Pharaoh's attention. And Pharaoh finally had enough. And he tells them to get out. And so they were free from their slavery in Egypt. And so then every year, the people of Israel would celebrate Passover. And crowds of Jewish pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate and mark this important holiday. 
The, the city would uh, experience a population explosion during that week of Passover. Josephus, who was a Jewish, uh, a Jewish uh, historian and scholar, wrote about how at times during P Passover, there would be three million people within the city of Jerusalem. So it's in this context of Passover that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And he sends two of his disciples on ahead. And he instructs them to, to go on into the village and, an untie, and there'll be a colt there, a donkey, the foal of a donkey, and untie it and bring it back to him. We see that in verse two of our text. And he tells them, if anyone challenges you, tell them the Lord has need of it. We see that in verse three. And so this is how Jesus would enter into Jerusalem, riding in on this, this donkey. Can you imagine how this went down, though? They walk in and like, hey, uh, we need this. And someone challenges them and is like, oh, the Lord has need of it. Wouldn't that be so great to be always using that excuse for whatever we wanted? We, we take something, I'm oh, sorry, the Lord has need of it. Or maybe, maybe we, we walk onto a car, a car lot with a dealership right? And we just help ourselves to a car and we're driving off the lot and the sales staff comes running out. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? It's like, oh, I'm sorry. The Lord has need of it. But as the text says, but we'll bring it right back. I would love to be able to do that. But keep in mind, it's been three years. So like, what's the relevance of that? Like, why, why, why does the Lord have need of it matter? Keep in mind that Jesus had his public ministry. He's three years into his public ministry. And so for three years, stories have been spreading about him, stories of the most ridiculous things going on. Stuff like about uh, him walking on water, healing the sick, calming storms, raising the dead, and feeding 5,000 people with a kid's sack lunch. And the people are aware of these stories, and they've heard of these stories, they knew of him. And he had a handful of followers, but there was a, definitely a, a buzz that was being generated around him and because of him. And because it's Passover, religious fervor was high. And as Jesus comes in to Jerusalem, this was the moment that they had been waiting for. And the text tells us that they laid out their cloaks on the road in front of him, along with branches. And this was a customary way to welcome a king. This was a, a royal welcome. And the cloaks and the branches that were on the ground in front of him, that was sort of their version of, of the red carpet. Now keep in mind, they're under Roman oppression. So these were an oppressed people. They were desperate. They're welcoming their king. They've, they're, they're recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. This is our king, and he's gonna save us from Rome. We're oppressed by Rome, but Jesus will be our deliverer. He's gonna establish his kingdom, he's gonna conquer Rome, and we will be free once again. We see in verse nine, it says, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna means, the word means save now. It's sort of, a, it's a very a powerful statement and, it, and it's a plea and, it's, and it's, 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 a, it's a, I don't wanna say it's a demand, but it's a powerful statement of save us, save now. They were desperate. And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To come in someone's name is to represent them. They are saying, save us as a representative of and with the power of God. So they're saying, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. In verse 10, Hosanna in the highest. Now, King David was the greatest king that they ever had. He's the greatest king in Israel's history. He was a great military leader. He was a man of war. And now their hope is that Jesus would reestablish the throne of David, of David and restore their nation. But what they, were, what they expected to happen would not go down the way they thought. They were looking for a king that would save them politically, but Jesus came to save them spiritually because his kingdom was not an earthly political kingdom, but the rule and reign of God established in the hearts of people. That's what his kingdom was all about. They had a misunderstanding of the kingdom of God and the type of king that Jesus was. Shortly after this, the text reveals, actually, if you read on, and we know this from the, rest, from the accounts in the other gospels as well, that the religious leaders begin plotting to kill Jesus. And by the weekend, enough of the crowds had become disenchanted and disillusioned with Jesus because he had not established himself as the king they expected. And those religious leaders that, pro that plotted to kill him would be able to turn the people against Jesus because the crowds were fickle. They received him, and then they wanted to reject him. And they ended up hating him as much as they had loved him. The same people that had cried out, Hosanna, would one week later cry out, crucify him. And to the cross, Jesus went according to God's sovereign design. Because he failed to deliver what they wanted, they were done with him. I want to be careful when I say this, but I want you to try to track with me. You might say that they had idolized Jesus. And what I mean by that is that they had created a version of their Messiah. They had created a version of their king that was not him at all, but was a counterfeit or a distortion of him. And that's what idols are. An idol is an image or a representation of a god as an object of worship. An idol is something that takes the place of God. We, it's something that we worship in God's place. In a very literal sense, people would take stone or wood and they would carve and shape it to turn it into whatever they desired. That's kind of what's happening here. We recognize you're the king, we recognize you're the Messiah, but you're this kind of king and you're this kind of Messiah. And it wasn't who he said he was. It was a misrepresentation of him. And that's what they've done here. They made him to be the king they wanted but did not recognize him as the king he actually was. We do the same thing. We make Jesus into the Jesus we want. And sometimes we fail to recognize him as the king that he actually is. We create a reasonable facsimile of him that is not at all who he is. And the Jesus we create then naturally becomes the Jesus that we serve, right? 
because we've made him the way we want him and that sounds good to me and so that's the Jesus I'm going to serve. And then, because that's no Jesus at all, when he doesn't deliver, what do we do? We don't go, ah, shucks, I shouldn't have made Jesus into my own idea of who he is. No, we often get pissed and we turn against, we turn against Jesus, but we don't turn against the version of him we created. We turn against Jesus for who he really is and we write him off. Despite the fact that it wasn't Jesus himself that disappointed us or let us down, it's only the version of him or the caricature of him that disappointed us. In such, a, in such a scenario, Jesus himself has not disappointed us at all. But we've created expectations latched onto this version of Jesus that we've created in our own minds that lets us down every time because the gods we make are no gods at all. And they're not worthy to be served. And we, sometimes we rebel against him and we, we write him off completely. And then like the crowd, we turn on him and we determine that we don't need him in our lives and we completely get rid of him and discard him. We accept Jesus to a point until he starts to divert from our plans and our ideologies of what and who he's supposed to be and takes us to a place we're uncomfortable with. We accept him, but then we quickly discard him when it doesn't fit our agendas anymore. We love our versions of Jesus, don't we? We like to, to create him into the God that we prefer. And I'm, 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 I don't get this. I am amazed at the stuff I hear about Jesus, whether it's an interview or something from Hollywood or an article or whatever it might be. The things that people say about Jesus, I'm just, I'm just so confused. And I'm not talking about stuff where you know, some things could be interpreted in, in different ways or whatever. I'm talking about the stuff that we would never be able to include if we would just pick up scripture and read it. And it has nothing to do with God as he's revealed himself. But very clearly, it has everything to do with what fits our agenda and what fits our worldview and what fits within our ideologies. I love Jesus but I'm not into a Jesus that says he's the only way to God because that doesn't seem very loving to me and I think all roads lead to God. Or love is love and God is love so God can be at the center of any loving relationship that I have. It's logical, right? Or the God I serve would now never allow me to suffer so he's going to heal me He's going to fix me. He's going to bring me into a place of abundance, of wealth, and success because I'm his child and he loves his children. Logical, but wrong. But we don't care about that. We like this version of Jesus. It sounds better. We like him. We love him. We accept him as long as he plays by our rules. We check him out according to our list of criteria. And if he matches up, we can have a beautiful future together. And if he doesn't check out, 
well, then I guess we can't have a beautiful future together because we're going to be shopping for a new Jesus that's a better fit for us. How backwards is that, right? That we would create a God for ourselves that we would serve. That doesn't sound anything different than what we see the nation of Israel struggling with in the Old Testament, where they constantly went back to their idols and their false gods. And the folly of it all was like, these were no gods at all, incapable of serving, incapable of doing anything for them. They were false gods. So we look for the Jesus we want, but not the Jesus he said he was. And of course, we love the former, the Jesus that we want because we created him. We're very impressed with the Jesus we've created because now we can do whatever we want because we're the ones that are making all the rules. And in the process, what is happening? In the process, guess who's becoming God? We are setting ourselves up as God. God says, I am this. And we say, no, you're not. He says, this is who I am. And we say, no, this is who I want you to be. And we enter into some dangerous territory when we start prescribing who he should and shouldn't be and how he should and shouldn't work. You see, what we believe shapes our expectations. If I believe my plans are best, I expect God to work within them. If I believe that he owes me, I expect him to deliver. We are setting ourselves up as God within that relationship. But God wants us to know him, and he calls us to know him. So how do we know him as he truly is? Well, the easiest answer is through God's word, where God reveals himself to mankind. He says, this is who I am, and this is who you are in relation to me, and this is how these two things that are totally incompatible because you're broken and you're sinful and I'm holy, totally intolerant of sin. These things don't match. But God says, here's a way that you can have a relationship with me. Scripture reveals that. So if we want to know God, if we want to know who he is, we need to know the Bible. And that is why we encourage you to participate in engaging scripture with us. That is why we encourage you to participate in our reading passages and our study plan that we put out every week. Every week we put out on social media and on our website uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at on Sunday. And we ask you to study on your own in advance to get into God's word together or on your own and and, in advance to, to get a sense of how God might be speaking to your heart and how he might be revealing himself to you, to, to, to do that work on your own. And then we invite you to gather, us, gather with us on Sundays as you are now and where we, where we get into the passage together and we believe that the Holy Spirit will re- continue to reveal truth to us. And then we invite you to gather in our discipleship groups and we call them that because we don't know what else to call them. But the focus there is now that God has been speaking to us as we studied God's word on our own and as God has continued to speak to us through the talk on Sunday, we have a pretty good sense of what the passage is all about, how God is revealing himself and what he's calling us to. And now we go to our discipleship groups and it's there that we, we take the turn where we leave studying behind because you, you can never stop studying. You can keep on studying, right? But we leave it behind because God's word instructs us to not just be hearers but to be doers. 
So we wrestle with that together to work out what does obedience look like for us? How do we move forward this in this together? And, and within the discipleship groups, you have sort of a micro community of people that are there t- where we can walk forward in trying to live out God's word in our lives and apply it to our lives so it can be worked out in real life. The more we know God, the more we, we will know what we can expect from him. It will protect us and guard us against some of the misplaced expectations and the, and the, the, the wrong expectations that we set up for him. And in that process, as we're coming to know God and we're allowing him to define himself and rejecting our tendency to define him for him, what we will find is that our thoughts and our ideas will be confronted. Why? Because he's God and we're not. So often we'd rather reduce them to our understanding. But I mean, I'm not advocating for an an unintelligent faith. But to some degree, I don't want to serve a God I can totally comprehend. What kind of God would he be? And sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we're trying to understand how God is working and what we're trying to do is reduce him to our understanding. And we're looking for a way to approve of what he's doing so that it makes sense to us. And until we can approve and until we can understand what he's doing, we wrestle with trusting him. We wrestle with accepting him for who he is and how he's working in our lives. See, here's the thing. God is always calling us to himself, not just so that we can ride his coattails into heaven. He's calling us to himself because he wants us to know him so we can have a real relationship with him. See, we t- there's a lot to talk about, and we're gonna get into some of this after Easter, but you know, we talk about heaven a lot, right? Say this prayer so you can go to heaven. That's not the point. The point is Jesus. It's, it's not about getting our ticket punched so we can go to heaven. It's about being with Jesus. He desires to have a relationship with us. If there's any doubt about that, all we have to do is look to scripture again to see how he talks about his relationship with us. First, we see in scripture, and because I lost my notes, I don't have a fancy cross-reference for you to put up on the screen. But we see in scripture that he reveals um, his relationship to us as being one of family. He calls us his children. That's to be a tight familial relationship. We're not strangers, but we're family. Scripture tells us that he adopts us into his family. Not something that he needed to do, but he did because he loved us. He chose us and accepts us on the basis of what Jesus has done for us and God accepts us and adopts us into his family. He wants to have a relationship with us. Recently in my own life, God used a a sister in Christ that's actually part of our supporting church in Fort Worth to really speak truth to me. And in the process, it exposed some unrealistic expectations I had of of God, specifically as it related to um, my relationship with him. You see, God has thrown me enough curveballs in my 44 years that I've lived out what Forrest Gump talked about. I I, I get it. Life is like a box of chocolates. 
You never know what you're going to get. Okay, all right. And so because of that, although it's not always easy, I try to take things as they come. Like, all right, this isn't awesome, but, you know, I guess God has got a plan somehow. And it, just, I've just had to deal with enough curveballs with that. I'm just like, okay, fine. And I gave up the notion long ago that my life would always be smooth sailing. But here was the problem. For some reason, I had different expectations for us as a church community. I knew the right answers. If you asked me to talk about God and the character of nature of God and how we can trust him, how he throws curveballs, I would have given you the right theological answers. But how I was feeling and how it was revealed in my mindset and how it was revealed in my prayer life revealed that I actually somehow along the line started having unrealistic expectations. And I found myself thinking and praying things like, God, can we just get a break? We've been through a lot as a church community. We're only three and a half years old. We've been through a lot. We've been through a lot. And I just was just wanting a break. My expectations were way off base with whether it was the, the stuff with Pastor Casey announcing that he's stepping down and a bunch of other things. It's just like, when is, when is this going to be smooth? When is this going to smooth out? I understood that in my personal life where I didn't have that expectation. But in ministry, for our church communities, like, I was like, no, this needs to be smooth. This is, you know, when are we going to get a break? God, in his love and in his grace, he's like, that's not how this works. And God uses those rough patches that we go through. At the very least, it's a reminder for us to cling to Jesus. It's a reminder for us to learn about who he is and how much he loves us, to remember that he's good and all those sorts of things. And what I've seen in my own life, and, and if those of you who've been around for any length of time here and have been through some of those ups and downs for us, we, we cling to Jesus in those moments, Right? And as a church community, we've, we've clung to Jesus. And we've, been, we've found ourselves in, in, in those desperate times where like, Jesus, all we have is you. That's all we want is you. Keep us close to you. And all right, come what may, we're gonna follow you. Jesus wants to bring us to that place. But we are always resisting it. And sometimes resisting it in the way that we reject what he allows into our lives. Because sometimes God's plan for our lives involves the process it's not just the stuff, you know, the, the, the events that we go through, but it's the process between those things where God is revealing himself to us and calling us to himself. But I think having unrealistic expectations of God is something that we often struggle with. And so there's a few things that I'd like to share with you about how we can expose the unrealistic expectations that we might have. The first is, how, is, is in the plans we make. Just like the crowd, they had decided how it was gonna go down. They had it all planned out. That he was their king and he was gonna overthrow Rome and they would live, live happily ever after. And we do the exact same thing. We make these plans that are completely separate from what God is doing in our lives and, for, from, and, and from what he's revealed. And we, our mindset is almost like, okay, this is gonna happen and then that's going to happen. Then I'm gonna do this and they're gonna do that. And then we'll do this and it will be awesome and it'll all work out. We got, we got these plans. And sometimes our plans fall flat. 
And it's in the examination of our plans that we can look back and go, oh, wow, like maybe I had unrealistic expectations of God. We know we have unrealistic expectations of God when those expectations are formed in our own minds and not informed by God. That's what we got to watch out for. When we have plans that are formed in our own minds and not informed by God, when we're not fully surrendered to God and, we re- and where we begin to rely on our own wisdom, and in doing that, we're essentially saying that we know best. In addition to the plans we make, another way to, that we can expose the unrealistic expectations that we have of God is in the prayers that we offer. The crowd cried out, save now, save us now. See, here's what happens, and I think we can all relate to this. If, you, if you're a believer and you're a Christian and you've, you've walked with Jesus any length of time, we know those moments where we pray and we invite God to work in our lives, but then we say, but do it this way. Right? It often sounds like this. Lord, we pray for blank, and we just ask that you would blank. And we, we begin to prescribe the action plan that God is to take for us. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we don't present our request to him. The Bible says we, ask, we have not because we ask not. It's, it's good to do that. I'm talking about how those things may reveal something in our hearts where we're setting ourselves up as God over him and we are prescribing for him and it's betrayed in our prayers and revealed in our prayers that really we're not surrendered in our prayers and we're just laying out the plan of of what we expect God to do. One thing that Pastor Casey said years ago that has always stuck with me regarding how we pray was that we should pray with requests on our lips and submission in our hearts. So it's okay to bring our requests before God, but our hearts need to be completely submitted to him. The next thing that can reveal and expose wrong expectations of, 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 that we have of God is the pain we feel. Certainly God allows us to experience pain, but the pain I'm talking about the pain, is the pain that we experience when we're a brokenhearted mess because it didn't turn out how we thought. That doesn't mean real pain doesn't come into our lives. I'm talking about the pain that we're experiencing because we've, we've clung to unrealistic expectations of God. We've made assumptions about what God will do and how he will work. And now we find ourselves in that spot where we realize that we have placed our hopes in our expectations of how God would work in our lives and our expectations and our hopes were not actually placed in Jesus himself. And we find ourselves in that place of like, oh, we realize that our plans and our dreams were just messed up distortions of, of what God had for us and his plans for us. And we have to ask ourselves the question. And sometimes we can help one another in this as we're seeking to disciple one another and, and encourage people in Jesus and walking through where is the truth come to bear in this? Did God promise that thing? Did he say that he would do that? Did he say that you wouldn't experience what you're experiencing? And realigning ourselves with how God has revealed himself and what he has promised. The next thing that exposes how we have unrealistic expectations of God 
can be in the praise that is conditional. Think about the circumstances we're normally in when we in the church community says the phrase like, says phrases like, praise the Lord. When do we say that? We always say that when something good happened. Da, 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 da. Oh, great, praise the Lord. But why is that the only time we say that? As if God is only worthy of our praise in that moment because something good happened. Now, obviously, it's appropriate to praise the Lord when something good happens because the scripture says that every good and perfect gift comes from him. But that should not be the only time we praise him. Imagine last week, if you were here, when Pastor Casey announced that he was stepping down. Imagine someone at the back, maybe, let's, let's just say, you know, Casey has just said the phrase that revealed, right? And someone at the back hollers out, praise the Lord. <laughs> How weird and awkward would that have been, right? But quite possibly, especially as he explained it, and if you didn't hear it, check out the podcast, there's something that's worth praising God for in that. God's working in Casey's life. That's something to praise the Lord for. I think of Job, who wasn't a perfect person, but there's a couple statements that he made that stand out. He was a man that suffered greatly. And he said, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes, it, takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can we have that attitude, that mindset? And then he also said, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. That reminds me of a time when I was with um, my friend's family, my friend's parents. We were on a road trip and we stopped into his hometown. We're visiting his parents and his dad was actually, um, his, his health was not good. And his dad was actually dying. And I remember his mom, they, they knew Jesus and I and, and here I am in their living room and all this is going down and his dad's in the next room and incredibly awkward for me, obviously, and I was just trying to disappear. But I'll never forget what his mom kept saying. His mom kept saying, praise him anyway. Praise him anyway. She was feeling pain. She was suffering. Her husband was suffering. He was dying. But she knew who Jesus was. She knew what she could expect from Jesus and what she shouldn't expect from Jesus. And in that moment, she chose to say and to live out, praise him anyway. I'll never forget those words. And that has made a deep impact on my heart and in my life. That God doesn't have to work in my life in such a way that makes everything great for me to praise him or for him to be worthy of my praise. We can't, through the circumstances of our life, allow our praise to become conditional, right? We can't allow our praise to become conditional where we only decide to praise him when we're in the mood, when things are going the way we like, where we've set ourselves up as God and approved of what he's doing. We can say praise him anyway and do it from a, a, a deep sincerity in our hearts because in spite of our circumstances and in spite of our experiences and what's going on in our life, Jesus is still worthy of our praise. 
We've got to live that out. That's how we rise above our circumstances to give him the praise and the honor and the glory that he's due. This is the life that he's calling us to. He wants, to be in us, he wants us to be in a relationship with him. And if we know him, we will praise him. You know the saying, the, the, the song, to know him is to love him? To know Jesus is to worship him. If you know Jesus, you will worship him. And if you don't know Jesus, I invite you to place your faith in Jesus and worship him with your lives. I'm not talking about singing. I'm talking about worshiping him with your lives by giving him your life. So when it comes to exposing these unrealistic expectations that we might have, we, might, we have the opportunity to catch it on the upside or deal with it on the downside. Some of the, some of the times that we can expose our, unmet, our unrealistic expectations is, is sort of preemptive, where we cling to God's truth and, and we accept how he's revealed himself before that gets tested. And sometimes we have to deal with it on the downside, where we look back and go, what happened? Why do I feel this kind of pain? Why do I feel disappointment? Why am I mad at God? But we have that opportunity to do that, and the opportunity is for us to know him now, preemptively, so we can be forewarned and guard against these things. You know, with the, with the crowd in Jerusalem, their first clue that they weren't really seeing Jesus for who he was or or, or that the, the first clue that maybe their expectations of him were misplaced was the way he rode into the city. He didn't ride in as a conquering king on a majestic steed with an army behind him. He rode in on a donkey with some of his disciples following him. And yet they're saying, save us now. We know you're going to set up your kingdom and deliver us from the Romans come on down, kind of a thing. And all they had to do was pay attention to what was in front of them and realize, and that was their first clue, mm, maybe we should adjust our expectations. But the people had decided how they would be saved. They had already decided how they would be saved, but that's not how it works. God decides how they would, they would be saved. God decides how, how we would be saved. And how they would be saved in a way that didn't line up with their plans at all. Was Jesus the king? Yep. Would he save them the way they thought? Nope. They expected him to, them to, him to save them politically and nationally and all of that. He's like, no, I'm gonna save you spiritually. I'm gonna take care of your greatest need. There's even something for us there with the, the state of our nation, the hopes we have in the political system and governments and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that there, there isn't issues and I'm not saying that we should ignore them and not take a stand or whatever. I'm just saying, as long as we keep the proper perspective, that that's not how we are saved. Our hope is not in government. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is in Jesus. So here's the thing. The people were focused on the immediate and he was focused on the eternal. So when we're focused on the immediate, but he's focused on the eternal, that means that sometimes that's going to involve waiting. And sometimes the waiting involves pain. 
And when there is pain, that's where we need to trust. And when we need to trust, that usually means we don't have answers. And even when we don't have answers, he is still worthy of our praise. So we've got to figure out, where do, how do we put this stuff into practice in our lives? Where are we looking for understanding when God has just asked us to trust? It's interesting. We are told to trust. Why would we ever why would, we, why would we ever be told to trust if there was never a situation that we would need to trust him in? So that tells us then that there's going to come a day where we have to put our trust in him, where we're not going to understand what's going on in our lives. And he says, trust me. So where do we have to put this into practice in our lives? Where are we looking for understanding when God's asked us to, to just trust him, how are we withholding praise and making praise conditional? We worship God because of who he is, not because our circumstances are good and suggest that we should. We worship God because of who he is, not because circumstances are good and suggest that we should. If we feel we've been let down by God, it's possible that we've made him out to be someone that he isn't. And our expectations of him are simply unrealistic. Let me just say this, and hear me when I say this. Even when life isn't good, God always is. He is. And you might like, okay, great, Lorenzo, you don't have a clue what's going on in my life right now. Okay, great, fine, you don't have a clue what's going on in mine. Want to trade stories? <laughs> God all day? That doesn't even matter, though. Because it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life in the sense that it doesn't change anything about God. It doesn't change anything about what our expectations of him should be. You know, I, I, I keep noticing, I guess because I'm a pastor, I text about God a lot. I don't know. But I, every time I type, type in the word text... Or, sorry, not, not the word text, because that's stupid. When, <laughs> whenever I'm texting the word God in my iPhone, you guys, you guys know autocorrect? You know what it always changes the word God to? It changes it to the word good. I don't know if you've experienced that. But every time I type, try to type in God, you know, capital G-O-D, right? I know how to spell. <laughs> but it always gets autocorrected to lowercase g-o-o-d. And I was actually telling Casey this last week, man, I hate autocorrect. And you should see my text with him. It's like, I'm constantly having to reinterpret my text so he knows what I'm talking about. But that's one autocorrection that I don't mind at all because it's such a great reminder. Every time I text, or every time I type, try to type in God, it comes up as good. God is good. I dare you to pull out your iPhone right now and try, try it out. I know you want to. I'll give you a minute if you want. <laughs> But I'll be honest with you, life sucks sometimes. I get it. Life sucks sometimes, but God is still good. And the reason why life sucks is because we live in a broken world. And, and, and everywhere we look, we see and experience brokenness. And so I would say to you, I would say this to you. If in the past you've rejected Jesus, I would ask you, was it Jesus you actually rejected? Or was it a version of Jesus that you rejected that maybe you created for yourself? 
And I don't mean how dare you. Sometimes just we don't know him well. Where it might be a, a Christianity and Jesus, that all might be new to you. And that's fine. I would say get into, the, get into God's word and learn who he really is. But I just would want to warn you and ask you the question. If you've gotten to that point where you've rejected Jesus, was it Jesus you actually rejected? Because quite possibly it wasn't. And if you're, and if, and, and, or even as, as a Christian, right? I'm mad at God and all these things are going on. It's like maybe what you're mad at is actually not, has nothing to do with God. And if you're done with Jesus, just know this, he's not done with you. If you're done with Jesus, he's not done with you. Do you think he was done with the crowd, right, when they got it so wrong? And when the crowd turned on him and wanted to see him killed, you think he's like, all right, forget that. You guys aren't wasting my time. I'm out of here. They were so done with him, but he was not done with them. And he continued on to the cross for them. Same thing with you. He didn't love them more than he loves you. You've not rejected him more than they've rejected him. Whatever you've done, Jesus isn't done with you. It's not enough to scare him away. It might scare away your family. It might scare away your friends, but it doesn't scare Jesus away. Jesus is different. And we sometimes try to de-God him and reduce him to just appear. And we impose and project on him that he'll treat us and, and relate to us in ways that everybody else does. No, the rules are completely different. He's completely different. And this is the beautiful Jesus that we want to proclaim and the beautiful Jesus that we want to call you to have a relationship with because the good news is that God loves us so much and he forgives us and looks past our faults and sins because, not because, eh, I'll just overlook this because they don't know any better. Nope, that's not justice. Jesus forgives us and overlooks our faults and overlooks our sins because Jesus died for us. And it's on the basis of Jesus dying for all of our screw-ups and Jesus died for our brokenness that we can have a relationship with God. The next time you feel that God has mistreated you, look to the cross. The next time you feel unloved by God, look to the cross. The next time you feel like God's not, he doesn't have your best interests at heart, look to the cross. That's all you need to know. So if he did that for us, yet I can't reconcile that with my circumstances, well, maybe my expectations and maybe my understanding is skewed. Maybe there's something I'm not getting. Yeah, probably not. That's okay. Look to Jesus. He's established that he loves you that he wants to work in your life for your good, to call you into relationship with him. He doesn't, he's not like the, the kid with the magnifying glass and the ants, you know, where he just thinks it's funny when we go through stuff in our lives. God intervened in our lives. He came into our world and he died on the cross for you and for me. And there's only one way to know God. There's only one way to be saved. And that way is Jesus, who loves you dearly and demonstrated his love for you by dying on the cross for you. And I hope that as we approach Easter, that this season does not come upon us 
without us truly considering all that was taking place there. I hope we ponder and consider and let it marinate a bit the amazing love that God has for us demonstrated by sending his son to the cross for us so that we can have a relationship with him. Let's pray.